0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Matic. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, he is very involved in the Bitcoin space, but not not exactly how you think, you know, not uh, not technical analysis in the charts, but more about uh, what Bitcoin has the ability to do as, you know, a, a societal Good. And so I I really enjoyed what Alex had to say. Uh, He is from the Human Rights Foundation. And we talk about that a lot in this episode. We also talk a lot about, uh, you know, the petrodollar and and how the US dollar functions in the world today. And, uh, you know, I just I just thought Alex was an incredibly intelligent guy. I think you guys will enjoy this discussion. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash takecast for bonus episodes. You can sign up on Starstock Market, use the promo code DavisMatic for a free ten bucks, or just listen on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, everyone. Very excited to welcome in Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. Uh, is it is it Stein or is it Steen? Did I did I get it right? I never yeah. I never know with the e before the i.
1: <laughs> it's it's Steen, but it's cool. Okay, yeah, it's good. Steen.
0: All right. Um, so Alex, very excited to have you uh, join the show. And it, and it, this is this the show never happens this way. But I actually was just going through my my crypto Twitter list. And you're, you're on the list. And I happened to notice that you were following me, and mm-hmm. I was not following you, which is I, I honest to God, in the history of the show, I would wager to, you know, 200 some episodes in first time ever you were following me. I wasn't following you. We got it. We got it rectified, but yeah, thank you very much for, for joining the show. Heady times we are in a lot going on. So I'm glad for you uh, taking some time out of your day to chat with me.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. I've been, um, I've been playing fantasy football for longer than Bitcoin has existed, so that's, that's kind of kind yeah. of why. But <laughs> yeah, happy yeah. to happy to sync it all together here.
0: Yeah, I, and uh, you know, I do. There is there is uh, some good overlap between fantasy football and Bitcoin because you you have the you have the people who like to play fantasy football to make money. Those people are are oftentimes they they love Bitcoin. They're very interested by it. Then you also have. The old fogies, right? You have you have the old guard that are used to you know bringing their printed magazine out to the draft. So it uh, it is it it is a very interesting curated Twitter experience for me.
1: Yeah, well, it's also uh, inevitable that that fantasy football will run on lightning, in my opinion. Uh, I had a meeting with the uh, sleeper guys like two years ago, yeah. and um, they were working on a, a lightning wallet. You know, everything's kind of quiet. But, um, you know, obviously all the regulatory stuff, but I think it's the future for all online payments, uh, for all video games and certainly for all sports related uh, stuff. So I think there's some actually like logistical administrative connections too uh, with Bitcoin and Lightning and uh, and and fantasy sports. So that'll be interesting to track.
0: Well, it's funny you say that we had um, Glenn Whale, who is the author of this um, amazing book that I tell everyone to read Radical Markets and. Of course, on the show, he's talking about this cost system that is outlined in his book. And, you know, Mm -hmm. my first thought was, oh, we have to make a fantasy football league based off of this. where like you price every single player. Every player has a price. If someone offers you that price, you have to trade them. So on and so forth. So it is. I mean, I do think the intersection between monetary thinking and fantasy football is very clear.
1: Yeah. And then we got um, we have a we have a sap bowl. Uh, that I'm in with a bunch of Bitcoiners like uh, yeah. Matt Odell and Parker Lewis and Will Cole and uh, Nick Carter. Actually, he God, he got me in the playoffs last year. It was brutal. Um, I lost by like 0. 0.1 and and uh, he ended up winning the whole thing. But I like Nick a lot. So ha- happy to see him win. We have the Sat Bowl and then we have like the, I just love the Bitcoin a- athlete uh, nexus. Yes. It's so cool. I, I it got is to cool. meet. Uh, I got to meet, I started, I, I got to become friendly with Russell Okung about two years ago. Um, he listened to like a podcast I did with like Marty Bent or something like that. And, and he reached out to me we ended up having dinner. And I spoke at his event that he did in LA called Bitcoin is about two years ago. And I just got to, I was with him last week in Miami. And he's like, he and Jack Mahlers have started this thing where like so many athletes now. I mean, Saquon obviously was, was at, freaking indie race uh with them and and saquon's a big bitcoiner and we've got uh, a bunch of different athletes mainly in football but i think increasingly in baseball and some other sports look they're all going to want to get paid in bitcoin like or at least partly and and that's a huge interesting trend as well um that i've been tracking so yeah lots of lots of neat little intersections here (laughs) for sure
0: all right. So, what was your what was your uh, your genesis block? How did who who introduced yeah. you to Bitcoin? Do you remember? Were you were you into it right away, or were you like, I'm not so sure? You know, I, I, I always find people's you know journeys with it to be pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, I would say mine is um, pretty unconventional because I I come from a background in uh, the nonprofit space, in the human rights space. I've been working for a human rights group called the Human Rights Foundation since uh, 2007. Um, and for like a solid decade, I, I was building this career and working with human rights activists around the world. We have like a special focus on people who live under authoritarian regimes, you know, where yeah. they don't have a Supreme court or a free press, or, you know, the ability to create a, an amnesty or a Greenpeace mm-hmm. or whatever. They just like they're, they're stuck. And there's like 4.3 billion of these people who live under regimes ever from China to North Korea to Cuba, uh, to, to, Azerbaijan to Zimbabwe, etc. So, um, you know, with that in mind, uh, I, I actually, a couple of years ago, I, I was trying to figure out when, when the first time I had learned about Bitcoin was. So in 2013, these like Ukrainian activists reached out to us and they, this was right before Russia invaded Ukraine in, in early 2014. And they were like, hey, is it possible to like talk with you about how we could help these, these activists that are in Ukraine, you know, their bank accounts got shut down or whatever." So we had some initial conversations, and then actually the next year in 2014, my org HRF uh, started accepting Bitcoin. So we've been accepting Bitcoin for a long time, but yeah. personally, I didn't, I did not go down the rabbit hole until early 2017. Uh, that spring, we were approached by a Bitcoin mining company actually called BitFury, and and the guys who started it I guess grew up in Eastern Europe and and the former Soviet Union and. They were really interested in seeing some conversations be- between the human rights space and the Bitcoin space, so we did that live at an event uh, in May 2017. And I remember that's when, like, okay, the price finally went above a thousand again after like a very long bear market. Um, people started to get excited. Right. There was a lot of interest. It was no one knew what was going on. It was it was a really interesting time. That's when I really got into it. Uh, for me, watching Andreas Antonopoulos' videos was pretty much like the way I figured it out like he helped uh former, he former guest my, of this show andreas yeah, andreas the legend um yeah so yeah that's and, and andreas i guess it was was very it was easy for me to understand bitcoin through his lens right he has a very kind of like neutral open way of, of talking about bitcoin that i really appreciated and i think was kind of rare at the time um which really helped me you know, understand how it would be such a powerful tool for, for human rights activism. And, and that's what I've been doing for, for the last five years is, um, you know, talking about it from that perspective, educating people and, and on the side, uh, privately talking to activists and interviewing them all over the world to understand their money problems and to understand how this is the tool that can help fix it. Um, and all of a sudden... Yeah, now in the last year, things have just gotten uh, really crazy in terms of the Bitcoin timeline, in terms of uh, what has all happened. But uh, it remains this like incredibly powerful tool to connect humans together and to empower them. So that's what I focus on in my work.
0: I find that uh, I find that origin story to be pretty fascinating because in my in my life, I don't know, I would say. 80, 90% 80, 90% of the people I know who I count as like friends who bought Bitcoin for the first time, they did it for gambling. They did it for, totally. you know, online poker, poker, online sports, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And so I, I find it fascinating when someone engages with Bitcoin ideologically before, because, and, and this is still the stigma today. It's like, oh, you know, Bitcoin's mm-hmm. only it's only good for criminals. It's only good, for, right. even though, again, we all know, uh, if you would like to commit a crime, you, you should use cash. You, you should not use Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a bad medium uh, in which to in which to commit crimes. Uh, but like, I would certainly I would certainly opt for cash. I mean, and this is a, a huge yeah. story. And and no, Bitcoin wasn't hacked. And it's not that you'd get your coins taken. It's just that <laughs> it could be traced to you, you know, fairly fairly easily. So I, I find I I just find it very funny. Uh, or not not funny, but I just find it to be cool to engage with it ideologically before engaging with it in a utilitarian perspective.
1: Yeah, and if you think about the history of the internet and the history of encrypted messaging, which has allowed us to, you know, be able to trade messages with each other using an app like Signal in a way that the NSA can't. They, the NSA can't see inside; they can see the metadata, but they can't see what we're saying. That's only possible because of the work of all these activists in the late '80s and '90s called the Cypherpunks. Mm-hmm. And they were like, look, things are going to get real, weird, real, weird, real, real, real fast when the world becomes all digital. And there's two ways we can protect our rights online. We can lobby for them and we can like can try to beg the government not to violate them. Or we could just create open source code that makes it impossible. And that that is the shield to defend us. And they went that route, which I'm gra- very grateful for. And the same stuff happened in the early 90s. If you look back, actually, it was the Clinton administration and Biden, actually, specifically, who were really anti-encryption. And they said it was for pedophiles and terrorists and bad people. And, uh, you know, they ended up losing that battle. They wanted to put a clipper chip in everybody's phones so that they could see what was going on to have like a man in the middle. Um, they ended up losing uh, both on kind of like Supreme Court grounds of free expression and, and private property, but also just in terms of uh, the, the movement in the market and encrypted messaging and encryption ended up giving birth in many ways to e-commerce and to the whole boom in right. Silicon Valley. So, you know, we have to kind of look ahead to what Bitcoin's going to do in the future. But that's kind of where we are now. We're going through the same thing again, where, you know, these sort of uh, like Luddites are like saying, oh, this is like dangerous technology. It's going to empower bad people. And that's like to me, that's uh, that's number one, just like ignorant because, because you, you're not learning the lessons of what we, what we went through with the open web and email and encryption. Bitcoin yeah. is very similar to those technologies. But it's also tremendously like living in a bubble of like financial privilege. And this is something that I, I work on a lot, because people around the world today don't have the privilege of Americans who grew up in the dollar system. And I know we'll get to talking about the Fed and the US, but like, most people don't have even the luxury of living in something remotely as stable as we do like 1.3 billion people live under double or triple digit inflation. I mean, that's some crazy shit. So, um, and that's not just in one place. Like we're talking, everybody says, Oh, you know, Venezuela, like how sad. Yes, that is really sad. That's a huge country that that's very important. And it's, it's, been destroyed. And that's very sad. But we're talking like massive countries like Nigeria, 200 million people, Pakistan, 200 million people, Argentina, 45 million people, Uh, Ethiopia, 100 million people. So these are all countries where the average person is suffering from 15%, 20%, 45% inflation, higher food inflation, and Bitcoin is like a way out for them, right? Then we have the 4 billion plus people who live under authoritarianism. So they don't have like constitutional protections. So again, Bitcoin also way out for them in terms of if the government freezes their bank account or they get isolated, uh, well, guess what? The government can't stop you from receiving Bitcoin. So, so that's the lens that I look at, at through. And it's funny to me to watch like Paul Krugman or whatever say, oh, this is just nonsense. It's not going to help anybody. I'd like him to, to use the Sudanese pound for six months and then get yeah. back to me about how freaking useful Bitcoin is. Because, you know, you talk to I've been interviewing Sudanese people. They have three hundred and forty percent inflation. I mean that's mind-boggling, and and they're and they're educating each other, and they're 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 spreading the word, man, and and they're using Bitcoin, and you know the mobile phone is growing so fast. Like five years ago, there was only five percent penetration with mobile smartphones in Sudan. Right now, it's twenty-five percent. In two years, it's going to be fifty percent. So these countries are like coming online, and just like in East Africa, where people leapfrogged. Uh, the landline. They went from having no phone to having the mobile phone. Well, in El Salvador and in Central America and Latin America and Africa, other places, they're going to leap from having no bank account. 70% of El Salvadorans have no bank account, no bank
0: account. to having
1: a Bitcoin account, uh, you know, or at least a Bitcoin powered account. And to me, that's very, very powerful and really exciting.
0: That is one of the, I mean, that's probably the criticism of Bitcoin that I find to be the most abhorrent. Like if if your argument against Bitcoin is, and, and there are arguments against Bitcoin that I'm sympathetic to, sure. that, and we're and we're going to talk about, uh, I mean the the huge, craw in my jaw with Bitcoin, but and that's how we'll mm-hmm. end the show. But mm-hmm. the the one that I have no sympathy for is this has no use for people or discounting what it's done in Argentina, right. discounting what it's done in Nigeria, because that, that just becomes a basically fuck poor people talking point of it basically becomes, I don't give a shit what is happening to poor people in Nigeria that has no impact to me. Bitcoin stupid. Like it, it, it is, I mean, it's, it's straight up just like classifying human lives as not important to your argument. And it's, it's, it is always very much bothered me.
1: Yeah. So, that's the key thing, though. You have to understand it's social value, or else, yes, you're going to think it's a waste of energy and all this other stuff. So, for me, it's very important to share the fact that it is incredibly valuable for society, uh, and not just for people in developing countries. I mean, we got deplatforming out here. Uh, we got potentially some big inflation coming. I mean, who knows? But like, but people, you know, are able to now finally like own something in a way that's sovereign to them. It's real private property rights that you can protect with math. You don't need guns, you don't need violence. It's very, very powerful and um, it's useful for anybody. I mean, think about Americans who have family in India or in El Salvador, like you don't don't need to be vulnerable to to find this useful. Like instead of dealing with Western Union and then your family in India or in, in El Salvador has to like get on a bus and go like three hours somewhere to get the cash at a pickup point no, like they can just instantly, with lightning, receive the money on their phone. This is what's happening today. Like this is a big step function in like our civilizational ability to like connect with each other. It's, it's pretty freaking cool, man. And I, I just wish that more people would be open-minded to this, uh, learning about how it's having an impact in the world around them. It's very similar to like my human rights work more generally, which is why I, I get fired up about it, because it's very hard to get people to be empathetic about what's happening halfway around the world. Like people don't really care about human that's, rights in that's China.
0: That's so true. Yeah, I mean, no one, no one cares about the. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mispronounce. I, I what's the, what's the name? I mean, there's literally a whole group of people being genocidally murdered. Yeah, the by Uyghurs in Xinjiang. The Uyghurs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 and and there's virtue signaling, which is
1: fine. Like if you want to, but it's, a virtue but it's signal,
0: reverse virtue signaling. The only people who virtue signal for these people are conservative politicians in the United States who want to who want to say that sure. China is bad. Yeah. sure,
1: 100 percent. No. And I'm not against virtue signaling. I think it's exciting to see people sure. virtue signal uh, in favor of the Uyghurs. They'll take all the help they can get. But what people out there on, on Twitter or whatever that are criticizing Bitcoin, they don't realize is that Bitcoin is doing more for freedom in China than any amount of virtue signaling they will ever do throughout their entire lives. Like it is giving millions of people financial freedom, a way to get around the state, a way to send money abroad to their families a way to save against debasement and confiscation. Like it is like materially like upgrading uh, people's lives and in a way that is hard to track, admittedly. And like the thing with Bitcoin is, and I know Andrea says this often, like it's not like if you're helped out by Bitcoin, you're going to go to the media and be like, hey, let me tell my story to you. Like right. it's usually like you want to keep your financial life a low profile, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, legit or not. Like y- you don't, you're not trying to go to the press to talk to them about this. So all the most amazing stories about Bitcoin in the world, like, have never been told, basically. I've, I've like, I've, I've kind of uncovered, a, like, a tiny corner of them, and I've tried to share those with people. But, you know, the, I mean, I was looking at some data the other day. There's 6 million Bitcoin hodlers in India alone. I mean, that's yeah. just like one country. There's, there's more than 1.5 million users of Paxful, which is like a peer-to-peer marketplace, mm-hmm. in Nigeria alone. I mean... There's tens of millions of users of this thing in the emerging markets. So it's very important. It has a lot of social value. And, and that's the first kind of obstacle you have to get through in your journey of learning about Bitcoin. You have to understand that it's, it's helping people. And then and then you can go talk about all the trade-offs. And then we can have an educated conversation about all that.
0: So in, uh, in your role at the Human Rights Foundation, um, like... How did you begin to work Bitcoin into this stuff? And what, like, were you having to sell the people that you work with on it? Were you like, I know this sounds insane. I know, <laughs> I know look, it's it's uh, it's magic internet money, but mm-hmm. I promise you guys, there is a future here. There's clear applications here. Like, was this a very difficult discussion? Or was mm-hmm. it kind of just like, no, this makes sense. Like, let's do it.
1: Yeah, well, look, having worked there for 10 years and been part of that sort of uh, I came in maybe a year and a half after it was created and I, I had a lot of, um, you know, legitimacy leverage inside the organization. Right. But even so I wanted to be very cautious about it because yeah, if you don't understand, if you don't take the time to understand Bitcoin, it can come off as pretty crazy. Like you, you can be seen as, as you're saying, very crazy. So I tried to be very careful. I deeply believe Bitcoin is like voluntary, like you can't force anybody to use it. So yeah, I I wanted it to be something that was like kind of on the fringe of what we do. And over time, it's just grown, um, along with broader perception, broader understanding. But really, we do three things at the Human Rights Foundation with Bitcoin. Um, Yes, we do advocacy and education. So I do a ton of speeches. I do interviews. I, I just interviewed Jack Dorsey in Miami, which was amazing. I, I, I've had a lot of opportunities to do things I thought I'd never be able to do through Bitcoin, which has been cool. And we've been like putting the Human Rights Foundation out there. Um, our, our chairman Gary Kasparov—he's orange pilled now. It's awesome. We talked about Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, that's been really fun. Um, and, and the Human Rights Act community at large is starting to understand. And that's the second thing we do is we do—and these are off the record—but we do like workshops with activists from all over, from like countries all over the world. And we teach them about, we kind of do it again, Bitcoin's voluntary. So I'll give a seminar or a lecture about what it is. And then it's like, if you are interested in using this for your work, join the next seminar. And after, you know, later this year, we'll start doing this stuff in person again. But uh, basically, it's like, a, we, we get you to, to download an open source app, like the Blue Wallet or the M-U-U-N, the Moon Wallet. And we'll send you some, some a little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of sats. And then, then you come into the class and we explain what happens. We explain what that was like. And then we talk to you about uh, you know, getting yourself confident in, in the ability to receive, store and, and, and send, which is very important for activists in these countries. They often have their bank accounts shut down. They have hard times. So this allows them to collect donations, like regardless of what anybody thinks or regardless of what right. the government thinks. That's the power we want to give them. And then, you know, additionally, we have modules where we'll like help them get this thing called BTC Pay Server set up on their website, which is like an open source API to receive Bitcoin donations in a private way, a relatively private way. Um, and ultimately, like the, the the future is multi-sig. So think of it this way. If right. you and, and your you live in Bolivia, I have an activist who works with us who's from Bolivia. Let's say she's got three friends or four friends, and they all have an org. It's uh, to promote nonviolent protest or something like that. Okay. Well, you you could have your little treasury, right. But instead of it being on like her phone, you can have it be three or five multi-sigs. So what happens is two of the activists go to the U S or Europe or or even three and two are back in Bolivia. And guess what? The government can't take the money, even if they capture two people and like torture them or whatever, nothing they can do. So multi-sig gives you like the ability to secure your assets, And you can set this up on iPhones with five iPhones on Blue Wallet. It's really cool. So so multi-sig to me is like the future of like protecting organizations against against whether it's corporate or or state um, theft, confiscation, interference. So we teach all this stuff and something we'll be adding this year. So not just like what is Bitcoin, the political history, how to use it, but how to build a community. So we're going to have Mike Peterson from Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador, which really sparked this whole thing that you're reading about in the media now. He's right. amazing. So he's going to come and, and talk about how to start a circular Bitcoin economy. And I'm telling you, man, all these activists from all these countries I work in, they all want to start one. They want to start one in Lebanon. They want to start one in Guatemala and they want to learn how to do it. And I don't know if it's like repeatable in this sense every time, but there's certainly lessons that you could learn from it. So that's the second thing we do is like hands on kind of workshops. And the third thing we do is we actually give money to Bitcoin developers working on uh, the core code uh also yeah. lightning and wallets so we just gave um and, and this isn't like money that we have like it's we raise it we like uh, we get it donated from different people um and then we give it out so our last round was about 200k uh, in dollars and we gave it out uh, in bitcoin though uh to uh developers from india nigeria uh korea which we think is important to be like to support the diversity global diversity of bitcoin if this is going to be money for everybody around the world. It really has to be built around the world. Right. Is the, is the idea. So um, uh, and some other translation work, there's this guy named Arabic coddle. So he's translating all all of the cool stuff in Bitcoin into Arabic. And uh, we got some support from that, from like different VCs and and individuals in different places. And as well as Pomp, who uh, we did like this, like Bitcoin pizza day thing with. So so we got some money money from that too. (laughs) So anyway, uh, that's, yeah, that's our strategy. uh, Sort of public education, uh, hands-on training and workshops and then and then supporting the the apps themselves because to me that's like like bitcoin and lightning are where they need to be it's just the apps have to be more like user-friendly and and finally they're the really i mean honestly in the last like year and a half they've gotten amazing like they're so slick like uh when i was on stage with jack i did the i did a lightning transla- tr- uh, transaction and i was petrified because i thought it would fuck up and i would be like they would hate me. I thought everybody in Bitcoin would hate me if, if it didn't work, but because right. uh, like the it was one of these like huge venues and the Wi-Fi was screwed up, so I was running on data and I was like, eh. like it wasn't great, so I wasn't sure if like service would be good. But I was like, screw it, I'm just gonna do it. And I was just like, gotta I went, go for it. I went backstage and I was like, you guys have to like zoom in on my phone when I do this, <laughs> so there's no way out. Uh, and it just it worked. So hey, the stuff's robust. And him, um, nah. And 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 it wasn't a few years ago. I mean, to be fair to the critics, like you're right. Bitcoin wasn't liquid around the world five years ago. The mobile app sucked. Yeah, it was it was not good. But guess what? It's good today.
0: Yeah, know? things get better. Yeah, and and there are you know there are smart people all across the world working on making Bitcoin better. There are a lot of people who are incentivized to. You know make the lightning network work uh strike is a project that's really interested uh that i'm really interested in. i think that mm-hmm. was the one that russell okung uh was using when he yes. was you know converting his salary like those things are are very cool i i mean you know to to be fair i am less of a maximalist today than i was like a year ago like i i've mm-hmm. i've spent um you know, I've spent the last five years or whatever dollar cost averaging, telling everyone who will listen buy Bitcoin, and I still, I still believe all those things. Um, you know, uh, the there are you know a, a couple sticking points here and there, and you know, to I if I'm gonna if I'm gonna keep it 100, some of mm-hmm. the uh, political opinions of like true Bitcoin bros really turn me off. Um, sure. Some of the uh, you know COVID 19, obviously you know a huge. Sure. Wedge because you know, some of the Bitcoin bros were like, COVID's not a thing, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not getting vaccinated. And, like, look, I'm not telling anyone you got to believe this, you got to believe that, but just for me, for me, that was a big thing because I was like, I mean, like, I used to smoke. If I got COVID, it would have been bad for me. I knew a couple people yeah. who died of COVID, so on and so forth. And again, I'm not, um, I'm not proselytizing to anyone, but just some of the things in the maxi community. <laughs> Have have bummed me out, even as other amazing things are happening, you mm-hmm. know, across the globe.
1: I, I I get it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's just funny because. Uh... I, I appreciate that there's like a strong sect of like people who share a handful of very strong beliefs and they're very loud about it. But right, you know, when I talk to like Bitcoiners in Nigeria or like Peru or what they're like they don't. I never, I never, I never. That, I never, that, I never that, that
0: does not apply to their right. lives. No, I don't. I don't way. know.
1: I don't know what they think about government involvement in healthcare. I have no idea. Like we don't talk right. about it. Like we just talk about Bitcoin, and it's weird because like Bitcoin unites everybody under like this big tent, um, and we're gonna have different opinions. Like I, I always, I'm, I'm probably closer to you than uh, politically than, than, um, than, than, a lot, than or than, whatever. Than, than, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah. but like, guess who is, what? Who I, is
0: great. Like I like I him too. I fucking love
1: Pierre Rochard. Right. And I yeah. Love, uh, I, um, here's the thing. I love hanging out with Bitcoiners. Like we just focus on Bitcoin. I, I, it really taught me a lot, like previous to Bitcoin, I was very political in that way. Like I really didn't want to talk to people that I disagreed with. And Bitcoin has really like changed my mind. And I, I really True. love hanging out yeah. with people who, who can challenge my beliefs. And my my beliefs have changed over the years, especially with regard to the U.S. government and its role in the world. Same. I used, that, is, that has been I, true I, for I, me as well. I, I used to be much more rosy on what America's role has been, and i have yes, become a lot more uh, less rosy. But, um, but look, I mean, and, and look, there's going to be disagreements at Bitcoin, even like on the whole mining front, like there's, there's people who really want us to invest in renewable tech. And, and that's like where I'm at. I, I think it'd be really, I think I think Bitcoin's incredible in terms of how it's going to revolutionize the global energy grid and how it's going to incentivize, like whether it's volcano mining or whatever. Like we're going we're gonna to unlock all this new energy that hasn't previously been accessible. But there's a lot of people who are very pro-oil and gas, right? So it's like, okay, there's going to be all these debates. But at the end of the day, it's like, uh, it's this really interesting uniting force and I will say that like the toxicity, the the maximalist toxicity, it is kind of like a, a, a white blood cell kind of defensive uh, mechanism thing, because uh, at the end of the day, like what, what most Bitcoiners have seen in the last decade is just, I mean, just this, just so many scams. being attacked, like, Big no, attacks. Just, n- not just the attacks. Yes, the attacks for sure. But also the scams like,
0: yes. you know, like True. we could talk
1: we could talk about a couple like you know, legitimate other projects, which I will mention. But as you know, like out of the six thousand coins on CoinMarketCap, like five thousand nine hundred and ninety of them are definitely scams. Dead. So it's yeah. like, like so it's like wow. So if you're if you're just getting into this space, man, like like I I, I for me like you got to start in Bitcoin and then you can grow outwards, right? That's fair. But like you do not want to start with like Cardano. That's like not where you want to start with. So I always think it's like important to learn about Bitcoin first get a good grasp of what it is, what makes it powerful. And then look, yeah. I mean like, so honestly the, the other cryptocurrency that, that, that is probably most used and most important to people today is Tether, which is ironic because everybody likes to trash Tether. Oh
0: man, the Tether FUD. See, pe- that's yeah. it's so funny. People in Bitcoin now, they're like, you'd, you'd say like Tether FUD, and they'd be like, what do you mean? And then you'd be like, back in 2017, all you would hear about was that Tether No, was no, no, fake. it's still
1: there. In fact, I have oh, these- Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I have these like, uh, uh, Nick Carter makes these dice. I have a couple versions of them. These are the FUD dice. They have all the, the different FUD attacks. Dice. So here's the tether right there. So yeah, yeah no, it's still very popular. Um, look, the thing is though that like all these exchanges in Asia don't have dollar bank accounts, so they use tether. The tether. As that's how Binance is the biggest exchange in the world. It's way bigger than Coinbase, which you know is is massive, right? Uh, and Binance uses tether. It doesn't have dollar accounts, so they go to, you know, it's all through this sketchy bank, Tech, right? And you know that thing's going to collapse at some point, but until then tether being the biggest stable coin by far stable coins are interesting uh and and they do they do interesting stuff for folks so i personally think long term uh the like thing about bitcoin is it's very different from the other coins in terms of like the way that the the developers and the engineers work in that like they don't have total control like the users basically control bitcoin so and we have this mentality of like uh, be very slow cuz this is like a 100-year project like we think that our kids 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 are going to be using this. Yeah. A lot of the other coins are like very short-term VC kind of pressure like return my investment uh move fast break things. So so they they lead to different outcomes. There's just two different kind of philosophies here. We're building a cathedral or building like a like a, like we're building something real fast. So this is like a multi-lifetime endeavor here with Bitcoin and I think a lot of us, you know, we we believe that. I mean, maybe it's wrong, but that's what we think. So at the end of the day, I do think eventually, and what we're seeing is like the functionality that makes a stable coin possible is coming to Bitcoin. Uh, It may take years, but it's coming. It's just, it's very slow. So the cool cool part, what I will say about all these other coins, whether it's privacy coins um, or uh, like something like Uniswap or um, stable coins, like those are probably three of the most like, like legitimate like use cases, right? Like of, of, of other cryptocurrencies, a, a lot of what is being iterated on there over time is gonna be brought to Bitcoin. It just, it for different reasons, it can't be brought right now. Like Monero has like really intense privacy, uh, but if we had that in Bitcoin today, it would ruin Bitcoin because we wouldn't be for able sure. to audit the supply. Now, one day we will figure out a way to do that. Like in a way that does not prevent me from verifying that there's 21 million coins. But it doesn't exist today. In fact, Adam Back, who you know invented hash cash and basically proof of work and was quoted in the quoted in the Bitcoin white paper, he started Blockstream uh 2015 because he didn't think Bitcoin was private enough. So his first project with Greg Maxwell was this thing called, which is now called Liquid, which is a sidechain, which uses confidential transactions, which uses that Monero tech basically. They invented the Monero tech, they invented the tech that Monero runs on, but it can't be can't be on the main chain. So Same thing with like a lot of the stuff you see with like uh, zero knowledge stuff that's on Zcash or uh, some of these things that have enabled uh, the creation of stable coins through like CDPs in Ethereum. This is all being worked on over here in Bitcoin. It's just slow. And I understand that like that just means that there's going to be this like there's going to be a lot of coins. I mean, that's just the reality, right?
0: Yeah, so I think, I think that leads us to the, the great next discussion point, which is, uh, which is Ethereum, the Ethereum yeah. protocol, EIP-1599, decentralized finance. And so my, my perspective has been, I've always found Ethereum interesting, right? I find Vitalik to be interesting. I find the Ethereum Foundation to be interesting. Um, and back when I was really, really into crypto, listening to crypto podcasts every day, Mm -hmm. reading all the books, you know, listening to every podcast Andreas did. Ethereum was totally an idea. Right, it was, it was, it was just you could not do anything with it. I remember one of my favorite crypto podcasts ever, uh, Coin Talk Show, is my favorite podcast ever. It's, it's the absolute best. Um, but Jay Kang and Aaron Lammer tried to set up a market on Augur, and they were like live recording trying to set up a market on Augur, and it was like every hilarious pratfall you could ever imagine as they, you know, tried to set up the node and do this and do that, and it was just like you couldn't really do anything on Ethereum. And I never, you know, I never sold the coins that I had or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I, did not, I didn't, you know, continue to dollar cost average the same way I did with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of hear in the midst of all of everything that's going on in the globe right now, inflation, stimulus checks, COVID, everything. NFT, NFTs kind of brought the. I. I, I guess like the millennial attention span, yeah. maybe onto onto Ethereum, and then once you kind of started to understand NFTs, you were like, oh, there's other things going on with Ethereum and the 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 yield farming, right? The the mm-hmm. state the stablecoin stuff, like urine Finance and Compound and everything, and like the the realization that actually like billions of dollars of commerce is happening on the Ethereum protocol right now, and, and part of that is why. Um, I feel like a little bit less of a maximalist, but my, my main thing now is many Bitcoin criticisms of Ethereum mm-hmm. are not based in what Ethereum is trying to do because the, the big criticism is, well, you can't define the supply, right? The supply is uh, in the mind of a Bitcoiner infinite. In the mind of a Ethereum maximalist, they would say, the- that it's controllable that's a, probably. That's a
1: nuanced take. I mean, that's my criticism, but I would say that's not the that's not the that's not the popular criticism. But that's sure. certainly well, certainly the one I have, yeah.
0: Yeah, and and so my I guess my opinion is I am actually fine with Ethereum not being fully decentralized. I am fine yeah. with the supply, you know, maybe not being infinite but certainly being controlled by whether you want to say, you know, eventually eth 2.0 proof of stake or by You know Vitalik and and, uh, the Mm -hmm. Ethereum Foundation and and the corresponding miners and stuff right now. I to me it does not bother me that much because I don't view Ethereum as sound money store of value. I what I see in the value of Ethereum is the smart contracts taking things away from traditional finance. You know there there is a future and again this is like you're saying the hundred year plan where instead of going through the horrible and arduous process of trying to get a home loan from traditional finance, right? through a bank where Mm -hmm. there are collateralized loans via like, you know, gigantic liquidity pools and executed via smart contract. Like I, I can see that in my mind's eye and that has made me more curious and more interested in Ethereum, which is depending on who you're talking to, kind of a dirty word.
1: Yeah. I think that I think politically, philosophically, the reason why there's uh. Bad reaction to Ethereum and to and to you know the long tail of altcoins is because the revolution of Bitcoin is is that you know we cannot change the monetary policy. 21 million. Uh, it's 21 million, and and there was no pre-mine, and it was about as fair as it could be. And you know, obviously Ethereum was pre-mined, and there's like a small group of people who control both the asset and also the direction of the asset. (laughs) And it's kind of like it's kind of like fiat. For me, it's like it is,
0: it is kind of like, like fiat. Well, I, I think that's true. It's like fiat I think currency. that's true. Yeah. And and
1: look, again, fiat currency is enormously helpful to literally everyone on the earth today, except for the handful of people who are involved in Bitcoin, right? So it's, I think those scales are going to change over time. But like, I get it. Uh, I, I think there was a good post recently by Arthur Hayes, who's the uh, CEO of BitMEX, and it's, it's it, his stuff is great. I think you all would enjoy reading it. He does these posts every once in a while. He wrote a piece about um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And look, he he basically says what you said, like Bitcoin is like sound money and it's, I think, sound money for the world. And and it's it's a lot more than that. But he compares Ethereum to like a tech stock, essentially. And that's to me sort of similar. Like, that's what I think of it as. Like, if you believe in these smart contracts and you believe that it's going to displace some of the financial system, then, then it's like buying a it's like buying a tech stock. Then, and then, and then, if you believe it's actually some one of these other coins that's going to do it, whether it's the finance yeah, coin I, I or can't, whatever, I can't
0: get there. And, I can't get there. <laughs> no,
1: me I'm neither. Like, I'm not. I'm, I'm not even there. I'm not yeah. even to Ethereum. But like, I'm just trying to explain how he's pointing it out. He's saying, right. oh, there's these different different groups of people creating this tech, and you can buy stock in what they're doing, and that's that's essentially the way I would I would encourage people to think about it. But just be a little careful, like. Like no one knows how much Ethereum is going to be printed in 2022 or 2023. It's unclear. Sure.
0: Not um, even not even the people who are making those decisions now. No,
1: I interviewed them and and they couldn't tell me. It could be a hundred thousand ETH. It could be two million. I mean, so at the end of the day, like you know, we'll see. I'm trying to track the stablecoin stuff, especially because that is actually useful for people. But at the end of the day, for me, it's like uh, the the just like the philosophy and the behind Bitcoin and the way that it's just this like open thing that connects everybody is. Is is really what I'm bullish about the future, I guess. So well, I guess I guess we'll, we'll end it with that on um, on that piece at least.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and a lot of a lot of the the addressable market of what Ethereum is doing right now is just replacing like the high stakes gambling that takes place in in yeah, it's a casino, you know, man. The, yeah, it is. And again, like I I I think that there are. And, and a lot of it is based off of Glenn Wales' book, Radical, Radical Markets, mm-hmm. which again, I every, like everyone should read that book. It I, Of all the books I've read in my life, and I've read a lot, that probably was like the most, like I came into the book feeling this way about the world and left the book feeling a much well, different he, way.
1: Well, here's a good way of looking at it. I mean, Bitcoin is skin in the game, right? So everybody yes. in this industry knows that Bitcoin is the most valuable thing. So, you know, you can see this easily because like, you know, uh, Vitalik will donate some amount of Shiba Coin or something. Oh, everybody! You know, Vitalik gave this gift. Guess what? They can't sell it because if they sell it, it'll it'll go to zero, right? It did so, go zero. So, uh, like, anytime you see somebody gift something or airdrop something, that's easy money. So that's that's very similar to like the fiat system, right? That somebody just created yep. it with the click of a button. You can't do that with Bitcoin. You have to actually go use a volcano or whatever, some sort of energy source and turn that into money. Like you have to actually turn work into money. That's why it's called proof of work. work. Um, And over time, you'll just start to see this like people putting money, their money where their mouth is, is going to be what are they willing to invest Bitcoin into? Um, And like before what just which we can get into before what just happened, which is so historic and. Crazy. Yeah, let's, we,
0: we can talk state. about El Salvador now because um, we mentioned the volcano. Yeah.
1: But before that, like I always thought that the big shift in America would be when homeowners start, uh, you know, when they're selling their home, they want they're going to want at some point in the future. And I think that's now been like ex, the timescale has been expedited. I thought it would be in the 2030s after like two or three more halvings. But like and for the audience, a halving is essentially um, every four years, the Bitcoin supply gets halved started at 50 coins per 10 minutes uh, and now it's at 6.25. It's gonna go to three point whatever, one point whatever. And by 2136, it'll go to zero. So there'll be no more new Bitcoin after that. Um, But every four years is like a different era in Bitcoin. Very like uh, unique, each era is unique. And I thought we'd be several eras from now. And then at that point, homeowners in the U.S., when they go to sell their house, I thought they would want Bitcoin and not fiat money. They wouldn't want dollars. I think that's been expedited. They're, you're already seeing um, who is selling uh, Tiesto? TS, TS, some, some DJs selling a giant condo in Miami for Bitcoin. Like the high-end market is first. Um, you're starting to see wealthy people try to sell their homes for Bitcoin now. I mean, in five years, who knows? But like, I, I think that's where we get this really interesting narrative shift where I think a lot of people, including me, understood Bitcoin as kind of digital gold, like a store of value um, and that's how Michael Saylor and all these other people have been selling it to corporations as like an inflation hedge, as like a good yeah. investment. Let's get an ETF going, all that stuff. They didn't, they weren't talking about it as a payment network uh, or, or as like Which is. A if you
0: read the white paper, by the way, and I, I, I this wasn't yeah. in our agenda, but I did want to touch on this though. I, sure. I maybe two, three weeks ago, I read the white paper again. Uh-huh. I, actually, I read the white paper again. Because of Nassim Taleb, who I used to really like, and I don't feel as kind about (laughs) him. I mean, his books are still good, but I don't like him as much these days. Um, He pointed out, like, look, the the white paper is talking a lot about using it for transactions, and I I haven't formed an opinion on like, oh, does that you know what does that mean for the store of value? Like, Bitcoin is what it is in the world, and uh, you know, like authorial intent doesn't necessarily matter that much, but I, he did like his criticism, I guess, to his point did get me thinking.
1: Yeah, no. And look, I mean, there's this great piece that a friend of mine wrote, uh, on medium called, uh, Wittgenstein's money. It's by this guy, Alan Farrington. And the idea is, uh, you know, how would you know if you're on earth and the sun is going around you? How would you know if the sun is rotating or if the earth is rotating? It's hard to know. Like, you know, what if, what if the sun was rotating around the earth? What would it look like? You know? So his idea is like, what if Bitcoin is becoming money? What would it look like? Because mm-hmm. all the economists say it's not money. It's not legal tender, all these other things. Well, what, what if it, it was becoming it in front of our eyes? So that's like what I believe. And what you're going to see is Bitcoin go from store value to medium of exchange to unit of account. It's going to take a long time and it's well, it's going to take decades because it's a digital technology. Gold took thousands of years to get to its monetary value, right? Um, that's going to be highly compressed. But literally, it's amazing to watch it happen in front of our eyes. Like, it, it, make Bitcoin went from this weird thing that like was a niche thing to all of a sudden, like in the past year, like a pretty legitimate store of value, just based on past performance and the narrative. Even for corporations, they're like, let's actually take four or five percent of our cash on hand, let's put it into Bitcoin for the long term, like as a hedge. Okay, fine. Now, what no one saw coming was a nation state coming out and adopting Bitcoin, not as a central bank asset, not not as a store of value, but as a payment network, as legal tender. Now, this is crazy. So so this is like, again, step function. Now we're like going to the next era of Bitcoin. This is going to like aggressively and artificially accelerate a lot of things that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise in the same way that Michael Saylor, by deciding to be the first corporation to put Bitcoin on its balance sheet in that way, accelerated a lot of things. Like Bitcoin is full of these moments in its history where it's like, we're just kind of cruising along and then whoop, all of a sudden like next level. So here we are, this nation state is committed to, um, like it's legal tender. I was on a Twitter spaces the other day with 25,000 people, including the president, as we listened to the bill pass, it was the craziest thing I could, I could ever explain to you. Um, and it happened and here we are. And now all of a sudden, every single merchant in El Salvador has got to figure out how to get Bitcoin. So there's going to be huge demand for new apps, developers, education. It's this massive artificial, like like basically turbo button to like get people up and running. They're going to add satellite internet so people in the rural areas can get the stuff. They're going to be doing more mining. They're all kinds of stuff down there. And that's going to spread to Guatemala and all these other nations, right? And uh, that's, that's a, no one saw that coming, nobody. Um, and then eventually over time, as, as you get down the road, then you get unit of account. And then all of a sudden, Bitcoin's like your full stack, full economic currency, right? Um, but it, it takes time. And it's funny because people debate the white paper. You have these lunatics like the uh, big blocker, uh, you know, so people who believe Craig Wright is is Satoshi. It, is Satoshi. It's, it's completely insane. If you watch this guy speak for three seconds, anybody could tell he's a fraud, you know? And yet right. there's all these people who think he's Satoshi, okay? It's like, the problem is, and this is very important from a human rights point of view, if, if you if you try to just like cram in all the transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain and make these blocks really big, then I can't run a personal server. I can't run the Bitcoin software at home. You need specialized equipment, not, not just to store, but also to send and receive. There's like loss that happens. So all of a yeah. sudden, if, if the Bitcoin blockchain is five or six terabytes or 10 terabytes or 100 terabytes, which is like what it is for some of these other chains like Ethereum or just, whatever. Then
0: it just becomes centralized. Then it
1: becomes data center Bitcoin. What the hell are we doing here? So that's what the whole... Uh, block size war was fought over. Highly recommend it to your audience. This book is amazing. It's called The Block Size War by Jonathan Beer. And it's on Amazon. The Block Size War. It's it's a really good narration of the block size war, which is the friction in Bitcoin between 2015 and 2017 over the direction and the fate of the network. Would it be controlled by the users? And would it be a small block kind of Thing that you could run at home and that users could control or was it gonna turn into something the miners controlled? And guess what? The users won, even though the miners had all the power. It's like all total David and Goliath. Crazy story, but here we are, it's still a user controlled network. And now we're being forced into literally what is described in the white paper, which is now we're in payments. Now a nation state is gonna be pushing it. And, I, and again, not a great nation state. I mean, I love El Salvador, wonderful nation state, I just don't want to praise the leader particularly because he's like a little authoritarian. That was that. Not, so not that was my that. thing too. Yeah, yeah. I'm not here I to said.
0: I said this on a show yesterday. I said this is amazing. Had you told me in 2017 that. uh that a nation state adopted bitcoin as legal tender I would have I would have flown over the moon <laughs> yeah. probably would not have chosen El Salvador yeah,
1: well well but, but what would you have chosen I thought it was going to be like North Korea or some shit so so El Salvador is I like see, way I was thinking better. like Russia or something okay still that would have been worse so El Salvador. That, would, that would have been
0: worse from a Western perspective because yeah, okay. then we would have been like, "It's shutting down. Bitcoin's illegal forever. You can't use it."
1: Look, fact is, Bitcoin's money for enemies. It's for everybody. It's neutral. It's open. It's like the open internet. Um, this guy uh, should not be celebrated. We should keep his feet to the fire. But it's but but what what? And this is something I like to talk about in terms of like Bitcoin Trojan horse theory. Like these these regimes or these corporations. Or these rich individuals, they look at Bitcoin and they see it for that so- store of value, kind of like, it's going to make me rich, okay? We call it number go up. And and they don't understand that, like, inside inside the number go up is freedom go up. Like, if these things are tied together. Like, you can't get one without the other. You can't buy and be part of the Bitcoin economy and hold Bitcoin without supporting the network. It, it's impossible to do one without the other. So what's happening here is regardless of what this guy wants to do, maybe he's a Hugo Chavez in the making, Okay. Fine. Um, Guess what? He's now made legal tender a currency that he cannot control at all. He can't debase it. He can't censor it. He can't um, confiscate it remotely. And he's going to work diligently uh, to spread it through his country and enable people to use it because of this like chemical thing that Bitcoin does to people. And you'll notice this in any field, athletics, entertainment. Your industry. It just it just gets in your brain. The the first person, especially the first person who becomes the Bitcoin person, they're like, they tweet about it once. They're like, oh, I'm getting a lot of engagement. Let me do that again. Oh wow, I'm getting a ton of engagement. Wait, I should like actually put it in my profile this has happened to everybody from freaking Elon Musk to Jack Dorsey to whatever. And, and it, 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 it and you, then you dig into it and you realize what it is. And then you're like, wait, I want to tell more people about this thing. Cause it's really cool. So now that's happened to the first nation state leader, which I did not see coming in 2021. So here we are, there's all these politicians across Latin America now. And one of them was on the spaces the other day. He's the, he's the chief minister of Inf- innovation of Colombia, And he's saying they're going to do a similar thing that like Colombia loves Bitcoin and, Like Latin America could easily become this like new special economic zone where like there's just a lot of Bitcoin use. And guess what? It'll be awesome for people in Latin America. Like this is a way of like, this is real wealth here. This isn't some loan from the IMF. This is like actual hard money that like you can control. So it makes me very excited to see communities in Latin America, uh, in in inner cities, of the United States, Isaiah Jackson does awesome work. He wrote Bitcoin in Black America. You should read his stuff. Like yeah, or in I, Africa, that, that everywhere. Man. I have read that book. Like these folks, like they they've figured out a way. They've realized this is something that can like bootstrap economic activity and and human rights. And I think that that's uh, that's fucking cool, man. So that's where we are.
0: Yeah. So big question is, you know, if we see these dominoes begin to fall in Latin America and South America how do we see the Western world interacting with this? Like, you know, obviously worst case is, I mean, literally like it turns to violence. Like we go into these countries with guns yeah. and, we, and we intervene. Best case is, you know, the, the Western world decides like, I, we don't really know if this is a war worth fighting, let it go. You know, like there, there are a lot of different ways it can play out, obviously. Um, and anytime the monetary supply threatens to be out of the, you know, the, the hands of the powers that be, they feel very uncomfortable. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what happens. I mean, you know, we have, we have Liz Warren saying, you know, just blatantly untrue things about the energy of crypto, which is a about, I've literally voted for Liz Warren in, yeah. in the primaries. Like it's a, it's a, it's a bummer um and and it's like part of it is like what do i want a 70 year old politician to say she doesn't know shit she's just saying whatever her aides are telling her to say yeah
1: well let me Um, let me touch on the international thing so i wrote out long i spent the last few months well march april i was just like really interested in the the dollar system because people always say oh bitcoin's like way more energy intensive than visa and and that's super misleading because visa is like a payment network on top of the banking system, which is on top of the dollar system. So if you actually mm-hmm. look at the full stack, you start to realize, wow, oh, the U.S. dollar runs on the U.S. military. Oh, the U.S. military is the world's largest like consumer of oil and petroleum and energy. Oh, wow, like what actually props up the dollar's value? So I actually wrote a really long essay on this called "The Hidden Cost of the Petrodollar System," um, and this came out a couple months ago and. I learned so much about our own history as a nation and about how money works and just very briefly like people need to understand that like the current system of dollar hegemony uh, was politically created in the 1970s like basically Nixon floated the dollar and went off the gold standard to pay for the Vietnam War to kill a bunch of people over in some other country as well as to pay for, for, for butter. You know, they say guns and butter to pay for the social programs that, that Lyndon B Johnson launched. Right. And none of the European countries, they were all like, Oh shit. Like the U S is not going to be able to like hold the gold peg that it promised to do in world war II. And guess what? We didn't. So the, the French actually sent a battleship to New York city in August of 71 to get their gold back. They were like, yeah, I don't think these dollars are going to be worth much. A couple of days later, Nixon goes on TV, takes us off the gold standard Within a year and a half, the value of each dollar versus other major currencies depreciates by 20%. Okay, so they, they did call our bluff. We could not hold the peg. We had too much debt. So at that point, Nixon and Kissinger, they, they're like, how the hell do we save this? The dollar came under even more pressure because we chose to support Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The Arab states had an embargo. They raised the price of oil. Things were getting really intense. So They were like, how do we solve this problem? So they created what's, what's called the petrodollar system. They hired a bond salesman off Wall Street named William Simon to be the Treasury Secretary. They sent him to Saudi Arabia. And the deal was the Saudis and the OPEC countries had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it. Like they just had a historically large amount of money that even today is like shocking um, because of the, boil went the oil. Two, two, oil went from $2 a barrel to $10 a barrel. So you get, these, you, you get this deal done, this pact with the devil that we do with Saudi where, where we say, look, guys, you have to denominate the sale of your oil in dollars. In
0: U.S. dollars. And
1: you have to recycle the profits back into U.S. debt. So you have to buy our treasuries. That's called petrodollar recycling. Okay. In return, and they're like, fine, we'll do that. That sounds great. In return, we will protect you and we will sell you huge amounts of weapons. So basically, like the Saudis became non-market buyers of our debt. Uh, and we became non-market sellers of weapons to them. And that still continues today. There's oh, a reason yeah. why Trump and Biden, look, Biden was confronted with his own team back in January before he became president. And they went to him in Congress and said, look, man, uh, MBS killed Khashoggi. We have the evidence. And Biden said, I can't do anything I about it. We're anything. not going to go can't help his, you. That it's too costly because this pact with the Saudis is so important to us. And that has led us to prop up the House of Saud." Dude, 15 of the 19 hijackers in nine eleven 9-11 were Saudi. Bin Laden was Saudi. And yet we never went after Saudi. We blew up two other we, countries. We went up to Iran. <laughs> like, Iraq. We went yeah. to uh, the Iraq war. So, you know, you've got to think about the externalities of our system, not just the fact that it's tied to oil and fossil fuels and that we've gone after and attacked nuclear and renewables as a result of this. Uh, so not only the environment stuff, which has got a massive externality, but politically we've supported all these dictators. And then war. I mean, why did we invade Iraq? like it certainly wasn't for Iraqi freedom or human rights it had nothing to do with WMDs which didn't exist. And it had nothing to do with Al Qaeda because there were no connections. It wasn't to counter Iran. We'd literally supported Saddam in the eighties in the Iran Iraq war to counter yep. Iran. Well, guess what? It wasn't about oil either per se. We didn't it's
0: always pour. Everything's about money. The, the further yeah, you get it's into about money, it, man. It's, it's about it's, money. It's,
1: this is how based we are. So we've got to go all the way down. It's not about oil. We got most of our oil from ourselves, from Canada, from Mexico, from Venezuela. It didn't make any sense to go invade some other country just for the loot. It was to keep the system going where the, where those countries all sell, demand to sell oil in dollars. So this means like if you're Malawi or if you're Laos or if you're Argentina, you can't print money to get oil. You have to either export goods to the United States or you have to go buy or dollars. Or you have to buy U.S. dollars. And this just like strengthens the dollar. So. This is the system we've lived in for 50 years. It's called the petrodollar system. It's now becoming weaker. So it's finally it's deteriorating. In 2013, the Chinese who took over from the Arab countries and then the Germans and the Japanese, finally, the Chinese were like the last kind of buyer of last resort of our treasuries in the last like the 2000s, 2010s. They said, we're not going to buy your treasuries anymore. Uh, We know this is a melting ice cube. Similar international feelings about the U.S. dollar to the late 60s, where they said, we don't think you guys can hold this thing together anymore. There's this thing called the Triffin dilemma that some economists in the 60s realized that if the U.S. became the reserve currency in this way, we would have to have this increasing balance of payment deficit. and We have this massive debt to GDP ratio. And we'd be forced to do it because everybody else has this artificial demand. For our currency, well, that's now coming to an end. Today, the Fed buys more than fifty percent of the treasuries we make, not other central banks. The Fed is the majority buyer. Yeah, we buy so our like, own debt. We're in our kitchen eating our food, and 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 our and our power is weakening. So, to your point about what's going to happen about El Salvador. Like, if this was 20 years ago, I think we would have gone in there and smacked them around. They'd be, okay. they'd be dusted
0: off. Yeah, totally. Be, like, you, uh, you, today, you wouldn't have even read about it in the newspaper.
1: The biggest threat to our energy system now, this petroler system, is what Russia's doing with Europe, with the Nord Stream. And guess what? Biden came out two weeks ago and said he's not going to even pursue sanctions against the head of Nord Stream. This is like imperial overstretch here. Like, I think we're just we're not quite as powerful as we used to be. The IMF is having a meeting. As, as you and I are talking right now, the IMF is meeting with the El Salvador guy. Honestly, he was like not worried about it. Like I just don't know what we can do. This isn't the '70s anymore. If this was the '70s again, this guy would be dead in a plane crash today. Yeah, he'd be gone. Oh, we're not sure what happened. Um, Totally confessions of an economic hitman stuff. Like that's that stuff used to happen. That book is not all fake. Like there is stuff in there that's real. You know. So um, the point is, like, I don't think we can control everything the way we used to, and I think we should be as a patriot, as an American who loves the declaration of independence, maybe not what we've become, but like what we're founded on. Bitcoin is like totally American. It's about free speech, property rights, sovereignty. Like, like, so we should double down. And like, I'm thinking about a world at the end of that essay, I I go into like, what if we have this Bitcoin world, America is going to be so dominant and dynamic. We have like this incredible like population, like all this foreign talent, like we're going to be great in the Bitcoin future. So I just think a lot, all the FUD basically, Is coming from like rent seekers who are in control now, whether they know it or not. And they're protecting a system which exploits the majority for the for the for the for the the like benefit of a tiny few. And And they and they 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 coming in here to like screw that all up, you know. So
0: this is this is where (laughs) I'm at. And this is the final pinnacle of where I wanted this conversation to end up. My my view has always been government should be where people come together to solve problems and. Yeah. Like, look, I, I was poor growing up. I know, I know, still know a lot of poor people who have needed government assistance, have needed uh, unemployment. You know, uh, obviously every American knows someone who died of, you know, a preventable health condition that should be taken care of. Like healthcare should be a human right. I, I believe that, I mean, mm-hmm. super strongly. And, you know, those kind of base human human value, human rights beliefs mean that in the United States, you're, you're a liberal, right? You're, you're, a, or, or a Democrat, right? But the democratic sure. party is just as guilty of this shit. They're just as guilty of the printing of the money. The, the Democrats haven't been a non-war party. I mean, certainly in my lifetime, Bill Clinton certainly was a not. hawk. His wife was a hawk. Joe Biden or Biden is a hawk. Uh, Obama bombed everyone. So like, and, and it, like, Uh, You have the, obviously you have these, these political ideals when you're like, you know, when you're a 21 year old college student and you, you're like, you know, everyone's trying to do the best they can. And like, you feel very good about things. And Bitcoin honestly has done a great job for me in being like, yeah, you're right. You know, the the corporate democrats and the the you know, 80% of the GOP, they're they're worshiping at the altar of the same bosses, which is the banks, you know, and and the the ultra wealthy and the ultra rich. But like this is so this is where I get to. Mm-hmm. I'm with I'm with everyone to this idea. The Federal Reserve is corrupt. They are inflating away people's life savings. It's all bad. None of it's good. But then I get to here. So let's say we truly do achieve a Bitcoin standard, Bitcoin is legal tender, uh, 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 your salary is getting denominated in Bitcoin and things like this. So the way the Bitcoin economy is structured right now, you do still have the whale problem, right? A, a huge amount of Bitcoin right now is held by a small number of individuals. Like, I, like there, are, there are many small hodlers across the world, that's true. But I mean, and you would know this better than I would. Like yeah. a huge concentration of Bitcoin is held by a small number of people. The same mm-hmm. way is is, is true um, in fiat, and I, I don't know where right. that leads us, and I don't know where that puts I'll, us I'll, in a, a new world.
1: No, it's a great way to end. Just to comment on the two things uh, before I get into the conclusion. Um, the other big negative externality of our current system is is the the havoc it's wreaked on on the average American. Um,
0: yes, we, 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 we have can't a pretty. Save.
1: Yeah, well, we have a pretty high average uh, per capita income for an advanced economy, but that's because of like Elon and Bezos. We actually have a very low median uh, income. And since the 70s, uh, wages have stagnated or even fallen in real terms. Um, And this is partly because of the sacrifice we've made to keep the petrodollar system going and to keep our balance of payments so big. And what ends up happening is like, Normally, when a country has such a big balance of payments deficit, they, they end up their currency gets weakened and then they export more and then it kind of balances out. This is like a natural thing that happens. with. We like, don't make anything, but because we, no, because like there's this artificial demand for our currency, we don't have that natural balancing out and, right. and we don't have an incentive to export. It's too expensive. So all of our stuff has been hollowed out ever since we allowed China and the WTO, Like like all of our jobs went overseas like and the average American in the blue collar areas of our country has been decimated. We have this whole meth and pandemic. It's terrible, man. So that is like a direct result of this policy. And those people will benefit if we are not, if we are no longer the world reserve currency, like we will export more, we will make shit and we will sell it. And like, they will get jobs. Like that is, that is something that will happen. So that's one thing. The other interesting thing before we get to the end is that I've been thinking about since the El Salvador thing recently, it's kind of interesting. Like, if you didn't, if you weren't on board with the corporate Democrat Washington consensus, right before you, what was your option? It was fucking communism or Islamic kind of, you know, Islamic extremism. Those are the two like kind of like forces over the last thirty years that you could like decamp to. Well, guess what? It might be Bitcoin. I mean, that's a major upgrade for human rights. If you're like the Bitcoin party of like El Salvador or whatever, and you're just like giving out individual freedom to people instead of like an AK and like, let's go blow something up, like, or let's violently redistribute and steal stuff from them. Like we're talking about a big shift in terms of like opposition to America. I think that's that's very interesting to think about. So the, the final point would be, you know, how is this different from the fiat system? Because you're right. In Bitcoin, there's like a handful of people who own a lot of Bitcoin. It's not as exaggerated as it looks like on chain because people don't realize you can't you can't figure out who has what from the chain. Because most of the largest wallets on chain are exchanges that hold the Bitcoin of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. So we don't know what the Gini coefficient of Bitcoin is. We're not like you can't figure it out. It's very hard to say. What we do know is there's like close to 200 million users of Bitcoin, you know, so far. I mean, most of them are using it just by saving it. They're not like transacting in it, but that's kind of where we are. And the difference is that like, unlike Bezos, who can literally leverage his large amount of fiat to change the law or to get a bailout like he just did, he just literally got a bailout. Um, you can't do that in Bitcoin. So the amount of Bitcoin you own does not allow you to change the system, It does not give you special privilege over anybody else. So even the whales have the same power as you or me or whatever over the network. That is none. Like the, like the amount of Bitcoin you own does not el- enable you to change the network and you'll never be able to, to base the currency. Um, that is so different from today. The wealthy billionaires in America literally run our country. They get to decide policy and all this other stuff. And look, Bitcoin obviously is just one thing, it, 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 but it's very profound. Like, like it, it is just money, so it's not going to fix healthcare per se. But, but it, but it does have these weird network effects on everything else that we do. It does. So yeah. This is why Jack Dorsey on stage when I asked him why do you think Bitcoin's important, he said it's the most important thing that I could possibly work on in my whole life, and that's coming from somebody who created Twitter. Like, that's cool, man. He really believes this, and and I think I, I agree with him. And it does have this profound effect of equality of opportunity equality before the law we're all the same and bitcoin just sees us as just another node or just another utxo it doesn't know who we are it can't discriminate based on your creed or your belief or skin color ethnicity it doesn't know any of those things but the fiat system is built to exploit people uh, at, a, at, a, at a at a fundamental level and you know you kind of sound like a crazy person when you say that but dude it's true it's and, true. And, it is true. true.
0: And and that's a it's a complicated it's a complicated opinion to hold for things like stimulus checks where like people were out of work and needed money. And and like there were a lot there were people who, who well, guess who got job. bailed
1: out first, man. Exactly. Like my exactly. family or the
0: corporations. Guess what? Exactly. Got and that's first. where. And that's where and, it breaks no, down. And,
1: and there's a term for this. It's called the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect states that any new money created will benefit the people closest to the money spigot first. Then it'll trickle down to the rest of the society. And eventually, by the time it gets to the average person, that the purchasing power of that money has, has basically been down. reduced. So yeah. it allows seniorage and theft at the top. So that's what Bitcoin like opposes. Um, it's many, many other things that will not get a chance to get to. But to me, like that's the cool part is it kind of like changes some of the dynamics that have created such a consumerist, um, uh, kind of profligate, kind of uh, self-centered culture in our country where we don't think about the rest of the world. We're not connected to them. Uh, We don't think about what goes into the dollar, what makes the dollar strong. Well, guess what? It's dictators, oil, war, and inequality. That's what supports the dollar. So when you're out, out there attacking Bitcoin, I want you to think carefully about what's in your pocket. What's on your Visa card? How you're paying for stuff? Don't think that you're innocent. Like the money you use has real implications for people around the world. And we now are building a, a different system, and this one doesn't have those same negative externalities. Sure, it's got its own problems, but they're very, very different.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, what a what a what a discussion, man. This was uh, this was amazing. You were great. Uh, tell tell people how they can help support their work if they if they sure. were they were hyped on this. How, how can they support the human <laughs> rights foundation?
1: Yeah, there's two ways. Uh, you can follow HRF on Twitter at HRF for me, I'm just Gladstein. Um, you, and, and you can learn more. If you go to href.org slash you can learn more about our development fund, but more, more exciting would be to meet you all in person and, and for uh, you to see what we do. And we have an event series called the Oslo freedom forum. Um, usually it takes place in Europe, but because of all the travel restrictions, it's going to happen in October, four or five in Miami, which I'm really excited about. I was just there. It's really exciting place to be right now. Um, So you can come and join us and meet the activists in our network and maybe meet some of these crazy Bitcoiners too, and we'll see what we can do together. Um, But yeah, it's it's a really crazy moment in time where we are able to meme a new reality. I mean, it's uh, it's crazy to say, but I was literally on this call with this president of, of El Salvador and I asked him, I was one of the people on stage and I asked him, hey man, Like, are you guys going to plan to do any mining, like with your plentiful natural resources? And he was like, nah, I haven't really thought about that. And then he he paused and there's a recording of this on the internet. And he says, actually, you know what? We have all this like stranded geothermal from our volcanoes. I'm going to ask my minister to look into that tomorrow. And I'm sitting there like, this is crazy. And then the next morning he's posting videos. He's out there on the mountain with this like crazy new like 90 megawatt like uh, geothermal thing they're building and they're going to mine bitcoin off a volcano and I'm like this Amazing. is this is the real world man this is like crazy so <laughs> so it's a really exciting time to be around and look i think a lot of people listening will be like well bitcoin's down 50 45 50% right. <laughs> how <laughs> yeah. can you be so excited that's not how, that's not what i came for i came for for this i came i came for na- nation state adoption of bitcoin i don't i don't care whether it's 30,000 or 60,000 All you need to know is that in 10 years, it's going to be a lot more high than it is now. That's like basically all you need to know. So, uh, yeah, there's a human side of this. I hope you consider it. Um, And, you know, it's an endlessly entertaining uh, rabbit hole that I I know you've fallen down. And I'm sure a lot of folks in fantasy uh, will fall down, too. So thanks for having me
0: yeah uh everyone follow follow uh follow him on twitter uh the block size war i'm gonna i'm gonna put that yeah. uh, i'm gonna put that in my cart cool. i'm gonna read it uh and everyone will be <laughs> back next week when it comes to buying your first home everyone has questions can we even afford to buy a house right now well i need to negotiate how do i even negotiate luckily a remax agent has answers hey brian those are really good questions they are
1: thanks it's my first time buying I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.